Let's pray. Lord, our lives are in your hands. We're here before you now praying that indeed we would have the holy boldness that only you can give. Give us a desire and a determination and discipline that will lead us to the higher ground and give us confidence in an age of insecurity. This is my prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28. Old Testament book. I want to contrast parts of ancient cities. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah is a happy, sad book. It has the pronouncement of the Messiah and ultimate deliverance. It also has the pronouncement of judgment. In the mix of this contrast of both deliverance and judgment, there are messages mingled of hope for those who are faithful. I want to begin with verse 5. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 5, it says, In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. Now the previous verses talk very negatively about Ephraim as a drunkard. That's another name for Israel. Ephraim was the largest tribe of Israel. So those previous verses are not positive. But at that very moment when much of Israel is self-indulged and inebriated, in this case with the issues of the world, there is still a remnant. And God will be to that remnant a diadem and a glorious one at that. Verse 6. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment and strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Now, I want to contrast that. Go over to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. I want to contrast that with another gate. Matthew, chapter 16. And yes, these are important themes to me. And I will talk about them on and off semi-regularly. I want them emblazoned on your frontal lobe. Matthew 16, verse 18. Uh, off misunderstood text. God's love is aggressive. Read it. The book Mount of Blessings. God's love is diffusive. It spreads itself around. And there are periods of church history when the church is going from victory unto victory and the gates of hell cannot resist it and God is taking captive prisoners of hope. Then there are also points in times in history when God's people are negligent, backslidden, self-indulged and the church is surrounded by the world and succumbing to her temptations there is a siege that is laid and we're living in that age of siege right now it's been attack on the home it's been attack on leadership especially fatherly leadership it's been an attack on truth such a thing does not exist it's all self-chosen in the mind of the postmodern they're all lies and they're all designed to destroy the fortress of light and security for a world that is slowly beginning to reap the what I should not call the benefits, but the certain fruits of doing it its own way. People are afraid. There are times when the church has been hunkered down, barely surviving, hoping that something would happen to change her well-being. And there are other times when the church has made the devil and his legions tremble for their unity, their prayerfulness, and their spirit-filledness. This morning, I'm here to tell you, we by and large in Western countries are not over here making the devil afraid. We tend to be a lot more over here trying to make sure we can just keep things going. Well, I'm here to tell you, Jesus never intended that we live over here. He always intended by the confession of Christ's genuine lordship that we live over here battering on the doors of hell, finding broken people, confused people, even proud and willful people, who do not have peace or joy in their hearts. So this morning, I, I want to remind you of something. Have you ever watched a soccer game? I like to watch soccer games. I'm not particularly good at it. Uh, basketball works the same way, and so does hockey. Have you ever noticed this? Whichever team, it keeps the offense up and keeps the others on their defense. So in other words, 
If team A is guarding the goal and team B has the ball and team B always keeps the ball down at this end of the field, you can tell after watching for about 10 minutes which team is going to win. Because you can't score goals if you're A and your goal's clear over there while B constantly keeps you on the defense. But God's people are living on the defense when they ought to be living on the offense, especially as the first fruits of postmodernism are spilling all over the landscape. Depression, isolationism, dysfunction, they're all around. If there was ever a day in which we ought to be on the offense, it's today. However, this is not where we find ourselves. That has to change. I was looking at some news feeds this week and I came across two distinctly different ones. Now, these are not meant to be in contrast with each other and I don't want anybody to suggest that my dialogues are about any specific part of this great grand institution that we're a part of. The fact of the matter is everything I'm saying today is designed to challenge myself and challenge all of you to make sure that we are in the game and that we are not playing defense. Yes, you have to play some defense because sometimes the ball makes it back over to your side of the field. But you know what? If you want to win, you better have an aggressive, diffusive love of Christ that puts you on the offense because the gates of hell can't stand up to the presence, the power, and the legitimacy of a principled, dignified, noble walk with Christ. You put a bunch of people together praying their way for victory, asking the living Christ to come down, and I promise you, he is the key to victory, and he in our presence will give us what we could get no other way. So I'm holding here two very different stories. Both of them are very present. And again, I'm going to share them in contrast, not about their management. I'm going to share them in contrast to how they, they, both of them, I think, are trying to do exceptionally good management. But I want to show you at some level. Let's talk about the first one. It's a little Georgia school, and they were struggling financially. They decided... No spiritual, or I should say no theological obligation in this, but they decided that they would start returning tithe on all of their extra income. After two or three years of painful financial statements, they decided that anything they did where money was raised for the school, that they would return tithe on it. Now, it's a ministry, it's not an individual. And while I believe there's no obligation to do it, they collectively agreed unanimously that they would. The storyline has it that they rid themselves of their $40,000 of debt, which is a large amount of debt for a small school. And they are rejoicing, I believe, in more than the money. They're rejoicing in the unity in the sense that they can win with Christ in their presence and not lose. The other article I'm holding is unfortunately like far more schools where one of our larger institutions is cutting, cutting, cutting. You don't have to go very far in the state of Michigan right now. You might not have to go far outside the city of Bering Springs. Cutting, cutting. Now the way the song goes, as I understand it, is like a mighty army moves the church of God and that we are treading where the saints have trod and that we're not united, all one body, we one in faith and doctrine, one in charity. I truly do believe that we've got to play the game over here, putting the pressure on evil, make it defend itself and let the world see how bankrupt it is and may prisoners hope be taken in the name of Christ. But the devil wants to make sure we don't do that. So this morning, morning, I'm going to talk to you about our stewardship, but I'm going to talk to you about things you don't usually consider when we talk about stewardship. Take your Bibles and flip back over to the book of Matthew chapter 25, the last three parables of Jesus before he's crucified. How then should we live if Christ is coming and the signs are plentiful in Matthew 24? By the time you come to Matthew 25, 
the Bible writer has decided to pull these three parables together to prompt us. Matthew chapter 25. Looking at the story of the talents. Verse 14. For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves together and entrusted them with his possessions. To one he gave five, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. These truths embodied in this scriptural story are imperative for us to understand. When Jesus gathers his people, he never brings them into his family without giving them something to be a blessing to the church family, to the world, and to themselves. There's nobody listening to me here today who's gone down into a watery grave who was not giving special blessings, spiritual gifts, talents that were to bless the world, the church, and themselves. You may not have gotten as many as somebody else, and where you're at right now, it may look like yours don't matter very much. That is a lie. There's not a person listening to me here today who brings nothing to the table and who should fail because it's not as much as someone else to fail to bring it. God gives out gifts and then as the storyline unfolds, you can see that they are multiplied in cooperation with him. Whatever you've got right now may not be what you end up with. The question is, what will you do with what he's given you? Five, two, or one? It's important for us to understand there's an opportunity and an obligation in the early part of this story. The man comes and is leaving. He takes of his own stuff and gives it to his servants to use. It is both a divine opportunity, but because they are his servants, it is an obligation as well. So I'm not here today to sell you on how wonderful using your talents are going to be for you, although I will assure you that when you use them, nothing will make you happier. Amen. I'm not here today to peddle a, a, a group of goods to you so that you can go out of here saying, well, maybe I ought to make this a priority. This is what it will do for me, dot, 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 dot. No. I'm here to tell you today, under the divine obligation of the Holy Spirit for, by whom you were created, at the will of God and redeemed at the price of the blood of Christ that we are both given an opportunity but we are also out under obligation. We've been bought with a price therefore Paul will write in Corinthians glorify God in your body. And picking up on the storyline of Luke after the servants go out and do what they're told they say we are simply unprofitable servants. So I'm here to tell you today, when this message is done, you'll have to wrestle with whether or not the talents that I'm here to talk with you about are being properly employed or not. The second thing you understand is that this is indeed a call to action. When you look at the story of the five and the two, you see one word initiating their action. Verse 16, it says, immediately. This is a call to action. The one who had received the five talents went and traded them and gained five more. And in the same manner, the one who had received the two gained two more. It is a call to action and commitment. You recognize the Lordship of Christ in your life as creator and redeemer. You recognize his entrusting to you of precious talents, of time, money, love, influence, whatever it might be, you are called to action and to commitment. And there are many whose only action is to listen to the storyline. There's not a lot more that goes with it. If that's you today, God is speaking to you beyond the shadow of a doubt. What kind of commitments have you made? Or is it simply the church is supposed to provide for you like some virtual religious social welfare program? Listen. I'm not beyond going to John Kennedy back in the 60s saying, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. If at a civic level he can hit the high notes, why can't we as a church do the same thing? Amen. As a matter of fact, we're called to higher ground by a nobler Lord with a greater purpose. This is a call to action, undoubtedly. And there is one more thing that is unavoidable in this narrative. Verse 19. 
After a long time, the master of those slaves came and he settled accounts with them. There's judgment. Our lives are going to be and all are ready on display. But the choices we have made, someday we will face. The devil knows this. He also knows that whatever you invest in, you become. Whatever you invest in, you root yourself in. Whatever you invest in, absorbs and engross you. So the devil understands, especially as he's getting ready for the final battle. As he's laying siege at the gates of the church. By the way, friends, Protestantism is imploding. We've abandoned the inspiration of the scriptures and thus we find ourselves without sword and shield in dealing with a wicked, vile, organized and aggressive enemy. Where we find ourselves today is that as the last, one of the last acts of the Protestant movement, the devil is, is understandably intense about offering you every opportunity left and right to be in everything and anything except the church. This is where it's at. And thus churches scramble for resources of people and commitment and time and money and organization and leadership. And this ought not to be. It ought not to be for one reason is that there are millions of people who need us to be organized and focused and united and generous and well-led for the sake of declaring dark and light the difference and the invitation to go on the path of life and light. There is judgment in this story which we will all face and while I would hate to motivate anybody with the fear of being held accountable, everyone needs to come to grips with the fact that every beat of your heart during this message is a gift from God. Every breath you take, every positive synapses that's, that's sparking while you're listening and engaging in this message is a gift from God to give you understanding and wisdom. And may God help us all to recognize that life itself is a stewardship. It only lasts so long. What am I filling it with? Now, I know that I'm warring against a, an enemy that's very slick. He wants to destroy your desire, destroy your discipline, destroy your commitment to all the things that will give you life. He creates an element of living by feeling. He, of course, everybody wants to feel good. What most people don't understand is that if you can get beyond the superficiality and cross over the dynamics of lack of interest and actually make a commitment and embrace the truth, you go from only sort of feeling good some of the time to having an abiding peace and a joy of being used by God that is not in any way, shape, or form even to be compared with the way you were living before. There's an opportunity and obligation. There's a call to action and commitment. And there is an eventual accounting. We know how it goes. Well, go well done, good and faithful servant for the five. Well done, good and faithful servant for the two. Don't miss what Jesus says. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I can assure you that every little success that led up to the doubling of those talents was joyful for those servants. But you can't get away from the fact that the narrative is really about the person who had one. When it's all said and done, the thing that's left is this individual who managed not only to miss the mark with commitment and obligation and opportunity, but he misses the mark in the sense of the great kindness and generosity of the master. So we come to the one who has one talent in verse 24. And the one who had received the one talent came up and he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. For some of you today, you've not lingered long enough to wrestle with God and your own humanity and the plan of salvation to know anything different. You grew up in an Adventist home or a Christian home. And you don't really know anything different about God except that there's rules and they ought to be kept and you know you should, but you don't really want to. There are people listening to me right now who have buried their life skills, their life commitments, their life talents, and they don't really want to serve God and they're just like this individual. They don't really care enough to change. I know you're a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you didn't scatter. And I was afraid, 
And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. So here it is. I'm giving it back. Now the master has a different view of the situation. And this is what he says, verse 26. You're wicked and you're lazy and you don't even speak consistently. Because if I were to reap where I didn't sow and gather where I shouldn't be, gather where I didn't scatter, then if I'm that kind of person, why didn't you at least make one trip down to the bank and invest my money in a CD so that when I came back, there'd be a little bit of interest with it? Wicked? You could probably put a lot of negative descriptors under that. Lazy, which is just another terrible form of selfishness. And not even honest. So wicked and lazy run roughshod over honesty because even at an honest moment, if you had a little gumption and a little goodness, you'd make your way down to see the banker. Really what we have in this story is a showdown about the character of the one who gives out the gifts. And perhaps he sat around and said, well, he's already a rich man and it doesn't matter. And maybe he just sat around and said, what if I make a mistake and I don't have anything when he comes back? Oh, these are all the full gamut of humanity. I don't know. The Bible story doesn't tell us. But what is clearly written between the lines is that the master believed he should have, he could have, but he didn't do anything. Take away his talent, verse 28 says, and give it to the one who has the ten. Now, few weeks ago in one of our services we had an offering appeal that was put up here uh, our associate uh, student intern Pastor Jonathan Min in conjunction with Pastor Paul Pellandini put up on these screens uh, an offering appeal for Michigan Advanced Partners would you mind getting your tithe envelopes out could we do that take one out of the pew if everybody would get a tithe envelope out for a minute let's go back over this if we could I don't want anybody to fail to know how to act because they don't know what this is. And I run into people all the time. Well, that's overstated. But I do run into people who don't know how to use this little piece of paper. Obviously, you put your name on it. Some don't. Most do. And you put the date. We're very careful with how we process things. The first line is for the tithe. There may be somebody listening to me here today who doesn't know what the tithe is. The tithe is God's. It's all God's. But the tithe is something he says it's not about you choosing to do. That tithe is 10%. So of every $10, $1 is mine. Please, he doesn't say please. He directs us to put it back in. So if I made $1,000 this month, I put $100 there on the line for tithe. If I made $10,000, I put $1,000 on that line. But then the rest of it is where the confusion comes. You have the local church, the combined budget. When somebody writes something on that line, they are funding virtually every ministry of this church. The church school, the Sabbath school, the work of maintaining the building, the mission. In this church, people give by and large, just a little under 3%. That's an average, which means there's plenty of people giving more than that and plenty that aren't giving much. That line should have about 4% of your income if we want to meet our current budget. So if I gave $1,000 of tithe, I'd be giving $400 of offering. That would be 4%. Now let's go down to Michigan Conference. The local church is village. The Michigan Conference is a sisterhood of 180 plus churches organized and administrated from Lansing, Michigan. And then you see that little three-letter acronym, MAP, Michigan Advanced Partners. 
I'm going to come back to that because that's what was up on the slide. But let's jump down to world budget. You see 2% next to that. We have a world church that is disproportionately financed by the North American division. This is as God ordained it and it should be. Now today, I want to talk specific, specifically with you. If I gave $1,000 tithe, that meant I made $10,000 that month or that week. And then if I gave 4% of my local, to my local church, I'd put $400 on that line. And then if I was going to give 1% to MAP, I'd put $100 on that line. And then if I was going to give 2% to the world budget, I'd put $200. So say, Pastor, those numbers are way too big. Let's go down to $1,000 a month. Okay, let's do that. If I made $1,000 a month, 10% of that would be $100 of tithe. 4% of that would be $40 for the combined budget. 1% of my income would be $10 to Michigan Advanced Partners. And 2% of my world budget, of my budget would be $20 to the world budget. You add it all up and it comes up to $170. Now I want everybody to understand the envelope. This church has survived and thrived because of systematic benevolence. There are a lot of young adults here. You're going to make good money when you graduate. I'm calling you today to a commitment to all of these things. Everybody listening to me here today, it's a divine appointment. God brought you here. This is a divine worship hour. Now I'm here to tell you, I don't like to watch my church or my conference or my division bleed. If something happened to me on the job site and there was red blood pulsing out of my arm, I'd say, somebody stop the bleeding. Our institutions exist as a function of all the capillary feeders that feed blood supply up to the top so that we can have colleges and schools. But you get enough capillaries that are clogged and you've got this spiritual atherosclerosis, this hardening of the arteries, and effectively you're on the road to not having a church because instead of beating on the gates of hell, you're over here trying to cut costs so you can stay alive. And God never designed we live over here. God always designed we live over here. So here's what has to happen. The faith journey that surrounds itself around this little envelope happens individually, one-on-one. -on -one. You say, I can't give, I'm going to college. I can't give, I got out of college and I've got debts. I can't give, I've got kids. I can't give because I'm paying for my kids to go to school now. I can't give now because I've got retirement to take care of. I can't give now because I'm on a retirement income. No wonder eventually nobody can give. You know what? I'm here to disabuse you of the one talent experience. I'm here to tell you, you will never, 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 never take it on the merits of this preacher, but if not, find another preacher who will tell you the truth. And I'm going to tell you, you will never, 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 never be in a position to do what God's asking you to do financially. Never. Until you cross a line. So let's come back to that Michigan Advanced Partner. So Pastor Paul has this appeal about us giving to a Michigan Advanced Partners. I'm here to tell you, I, I promise you, if more of you start giving to Michigan Advanced Partners, more of you will be giving to the combined budget. If more of you start giving to the global budget, more of you will be giving to the combined budget. The human heart expands as it's used by God. It doesn't contract. It's not because you give to Michigan Advanced Partners you won't have any money to give to the local combined budget. Oh, no, no, no. It's just like all the money that's gone to Brazil or El Salvador or Montana or wherever God may want to send it. God didn't run out of money. What he's looking for is to cultivate a boldness and a confidence in exercising the power of the pocket so that his work can be strong. And it's my job to remind you that not only is it opportunity and obligation, not only is it a call to action and commitment, but there is a judgment that's waiting. And that judgment is going to say, what did you do with my stuff? That's a little cruder than how it would be said. So back to our Michigan Advanced Partners. So Pastor Paul gets up there and he shows us 
how last year we went from $52,000 to $59,000. That's very positive. That's wonderfully good. It's over a 10% increase. The thing I'd ask all of you is, did you participate in it? I hope so, but if not, I'm calling you today to start. I'm not up here wasting my time or my breath. I cannot stand by and watch this institution that I love, which is designed to stand up against the rampant evil, the colossal confusion that's in our world. The church is going to face a fierce war in the future, and the time to prepare is now with a few little faith skirmishes. And so then he hands out this sheet at staff meeting on Monday. Now you remember we had 1.6 something million dollars of tithes. Can you say amen? amen? That means all of you, or at least most of you, God's blessed with a decent job. And whether it's as good as it's going to get or not, I don't know. But it also represents faithfulness to God for which I take courage. And then he showed us how $59,000 turns out to be 3.5% of 1%. That's 3.5% of 1%. 35 hundredths of a percent. Now it was positive. And I don't want to take anything away from it. As a matter of fact, I'm holding a sheet right here that would make any pastor happy. It chronicles about five or six years of financial gains. And I praise the Lord for it. And I affirm you in your faithfulness to God. So don't take this as, a, don't take this as more than it is. But here's the deal. After he handed me this sheet, I saw what the whole district gives. The whole district of 20-some churches. Now, if we have $1.6 million a tithe and we gave 1% of our income, that means this church all by itself, if everybody was partnering in Michigan Advanced Partners. Hey, do you love Camp Asabo, yes or no? Yes. Hey, do you believe souls should be won through evangelism that's orchestrated at a conference level, yes or no? All right? How do you feel about kids going to church school? Do you think they should, yes or no? All of these things are funded by Michigan Advanced Partners. So what I saw is $1.6 million a tithe would, eat up, would add up to 160 some thousand dollars of Michigan Advanced Partners. Well, we made a little more than a third of that. And then I looked at the list and I saw that all of us, all 7,000 of us in Berrien County only give $221,000 to the whole thing. So imagine if we made our goal, which we can and we should. All of us can give a percent of our income for Michigan Advanced Partners. If we met our goal, we would make almost the goal of the entire district, which is sad and unacceptable. And for anybody that's watching today or will watch in Washington or Colorado or another part of Michigan, all of us should be a little bit chagrined to watch the lifeline of finance trickle down to nothing and evaporate in the desert of secularism and self-focused living. What we need is a revival because I can tell you in the city of Grand Rapids, there are hundreds of immigrant children who came from across the ocean whose parents have starter jobs. You know, the kind that you have when you're in college and you make minimum wage? That's what they've got. And these families tend to have larger groups of children. And what it means is, is that there are hundreds of kids across this one conference where if our MAP funds were about, if they weren't $800,000 or so that they are, but they were, since the Michigan Conference has a tithe of 30-some million dollars, if we had 1% on the income of the, of the conference, we'd have $3 million of MAP funds. Three million. Do you know with $3 million how many immigrant kids and low-income kids we could put in the Grand Rapids Church School and in the Battle Creek Church School and in the Village Church School and in the Ruth Murdoch Church School? Do you know how many kids could go to school? I want you to think about this. I can tell you of schools less than two hours away from here who are slashing and cutting their teacher staffs. It's not just institutions out in the West. Why? Because the churches are dying because no one challenges them to live. No one challenges them to do something to change it. It seems that as long as I've got a good job and my church is okay, it doesn't matter. 
I'm here to tell you that in this, conf in this district, we should probably be producing close to three quarters of a million dollars of MAP money as a collection of the 20-some churches that we are. But since I get to talk to my congregation and whoever else listens out there, I'm challenging you. Is the Seventh-day Adventist church to die on the vine? Is it to wither away into nothingness? Is it to take one final gasp and fall barely short of the finish line? Or is it to be a mighty triumphant group of people as we march to the end? Last week I talked with you about going home, preparing for and pressing through the time of trouble. On Monday morning I was listening to the news and I heard a man by the name of Eric Larson being interviewed about his book, The Splendid and the Vile. What is that book about? Well, to give you a little idea, when the, when the narrative began, they brought on a soundbite with an old bald Englishman saying these words. This is what he said. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills and we shall never surrender. This book, The Splendid and the Vile, is the story of 57 nights of constant bombing by the German Luftwaffe. And it's the story of how a man galvanized a nation to never give up. And while the battle was virtually at the gates of Britain, they turned the battle back, God's hand upon their efforts, and they drove the oppressor off all of the foreign invaded lands that he had occupied. One of you sent me this quote. I was discussing the dynamics of leadership between Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill, and they sent me this quote after the, the Munich conference where they gave away Czechoslovakia to Hitler, Ch Churchill wrote, he said, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war. He was a secular prophet. He was true. You see, friends, if you allow the devil to kick the ball around down by your goal, he's going to score, which is why the Bible says, flee temptation. It's why the Bible calls us to higher ground and a greater focus and a greater purpose. And I know that where you put your money, you're going to end up with your heartstrings there as well. But this morning I want to talk with you in the little bit I have left about three talents, at least three, that we've done a very poor job of utilizing. But first of all, I need an instrument. Does anybody know how to use one of these? There's some things we've buried that we're going to have to unearth. And if they're not unearthed, we're going to be buried with them. One of the things that we have not stewarded well is the dynamic of unity. We've decided that we can fight and divide over theological topics, and it's okay. Now, let me assure you that along the way, if some rogue element comes into our midst and declares some heretical idea which is long-standing in the sense of spirit confirmation, then we will have to say goodbye to that person. The truth of the matter is the devil knows that if the dynamic of unity is not cultivated, the element of separation during the time of shaking will be very easy. We've buried our unity with our self-indulgence on devices, even our own families, our own pleasures, and our own work. Consequently, we've reaped the whirlwind of isolationism and depression and fear. It's time to uncover the benefits of unity. One writer says, strive earnestly for unity. 
This is in Councils to the Church, page 290. Strive earnestly for unity. Strive sounds like work. Pray for it, but she clarifies, work for it, for it will bring. Now I have eight things she says it'll bring. Hang on, if any of you really hope to see Jesus face to face, some of these might want to be in your arsenal. It will bring spiritual health. Oh, you think it's just you and the Bible in the morning? Well, yes, that's the cornerstone. But you know something? Last Saturday night when I was here for Vespers listening to Dr. Gaines share on the Levitical laws, with my education and my experience, I want to assure you I am always learning something new. So I think most of you could too. You don't know it all and you don't have all the edifying experiences that you'll get by coming together. Spiritual health is a function of unity. For unity to exist, there has to be more than one person. Elevation of thought. Oh, the devil wants your mind in the gutter. But love for the brethren will lift your heart up out of the gutter. Nobility of character, number three. Oh, it's easy when you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram to fire off some missive that never should have been sent. You see the person face to face and you think twice about whether or not you should say that. Heavenly mindedness, transformation of my mind. You know, there's something about being with all of you that reminds me that being with all of you is what's going to make heaven heaven. But for some of us, being with each other is what makes earth hell. That's got to change. Enabling you, and this is how it happens. Number five, unity. Pray for it and work for it, for it will enable you to overcome selfishness and evil surmisings and be more than conquerors. It's just really funny how this works. As you take a little shovel of dirt off your self-focused life and you unbury the corporate experience with some unity, what you find out is, is that that quirky thing about that person isn't quite so quirky when you understand their story. Amen. That irritating little thing they do doesn't irritate you half as much after you pray with them night after night and you hear them pray for you by name. And they tell you when they see you the next night at the prayer meeting, I've been praying for you. And all of a sudden, the heart of compassion and the eyeglasses of Christ transform my very person. And it wouldn't have happened without unity. Oh yes, we've gotten a whole cadre of preachers and administrators and teachers who are just fine without working and striving and praying for unity. But it isn't going to work. And we're not going to come up and drive the devil away from our gates unless we get together in our house and make a concerted prayer effort to love each other and recommit to telling this message. Yes, unity, you can't press together if you don't come together. Amen. Unity. Crucify self, she goes on to say. Esteem others better than yourself. Then you will be brought into number six, oneness with Christ. And before the heavenly universe and before the church and the world, you will bear number seven, unmistakable evidence that you're God's sons and daughters. Listen, have you ever tried to tell somebody Saturday's the Sabbath? And they say, uh-uh, have you never read Colossians 2 and Romans 14? Everybody gets to pick their own day. May God help us from starting there. Instead, maybe we need to take another shovel of dirt off the fact that we're not very unified and let somebody come into our midst and be a part of a prison packing day or some other group experience or a sweet worship service where we sing out like we actually love Jesus and let them come away saying, the Spirit of God was with those people. Amen. Let them wrestle with that. And then the theological things will fall into place. But there is one more thing here. Number eight, if we strive earnestly for, pray for, and work for unity, it will, God will be glorified in the example you set. She goes on to say in a different quote, this one out of Testimonies for the Church, those who speak to the people through periodicals should preserve unity among themselves. Nothing that savors of dissension should be found in our publications. Listen, last day theology and Women in uh, ordination of women, I want to be very correct because every woman should be in ministry, but the ordination of women and last, day, last generation theology are not sufficient to separate this church. But we have. So, you don't agree with me on some of these topics? You relate to me totally different when you are unified with me on most things, even though we might not agree on this.
But once you love me and we're unified, you look at me differently, you respect me even though you don't agree, and you won't go around talking about me. It will be the honor of Christ to honor the brethren. And we will esteem others better than ourselves. But without unity, that's down the tubes. Split, divide, fracture, splinter. All of those things. Yes, we're to pray for it, to work for it, and to earnestly strive for it. But you know what? You can't press together if you don't get together. Oh, yes. We've buried a sense of unity because we've decided that Something else is more important. Now, pastor, are you saying I need to be at everything the church does? Nope. What the pastor says doesn't even matter that much. Unless it's true. And then God himself might be saying to you, you know what? For as unnatural and as uncomfortable, for as much as you'd like to sit here by your wood stove or sit here, fall asleep, or sit here and watch your TV, favorite TV program, there's a prayer meeting going on, there's a small group going on, there's a Vespers going on, there's an evangelistic meeting going on, and you, my dear daughter, you, my dear son, should be there. Wrestle it out with God. But you can't put eight qualities together that would bring us what we need. There is a power in synergy and togetherness that the world is losing because it's a function of the Spirit's present. And as the Holy Spirit's withdrawn from our earth, our world is coming undone. It should make it far easier for the evidence and the glory of God to be in our midst because we are unified. But you've got to pray for it, work for it, and strive for it earnestly because it doesn't happen any other way. You don't fall out of bed and get unity. It's not because you've got a fundamentals of uh, 27 fundamental beliefs of what we believe in on your bookshelf at home. Unity is about a deeply knitted church. It's what Christ prayed for. It is the convincing evidence. The second thing I want to talk with you about is the talent of mission. Now, mind you, it's awfully hard to think you should be giving money away to missions and focusing your life on missions if you can't pay your tithe remittance to the conference on time because your church school doesn't have the money it needs and, and it's hard to get money for everything the Sabbath school needs. I'm here to tell you, friends, we are suffering in mission because we are suffering in unity. Unity will not only allow us to do things we could never do on our own, but it will bring a sweetness to doing it. Nobody wants to write a check to finish the church budget off. Nobody wants to be the only person that does this. But all of a sudden, when you realize it's a whole group of people working together, or how about build a church or send a container or build a college? Nobody wants to be the only person carrying the load. But when there's unity and then there's mission, we go higher than we ever thought we could go without either of them. There are so many great financiers out there that will tell you, don't do this till you do this. Listen, friends. So you're going to graduate with some college debt. I invite all of you this morning for whatever meager resources you're getting to give a little bit of what you've got now. So you're retired. And that paycheck is constantly the same, painfully the same, no matter how big the last doctor bill was or not. All right, make a covenant with God. See what's going to happen. You are so busy, you've got so many tests, you're so busy, you're running a business or an educational, you, you've got so much to do, you can't make time to come out and do this another night out? Are you kidding? I want to tell you, we need to unbury the talent of access to God. It's called prayer. I've had enough of the great strategizing of man, and I'm convinced God's bringing us to the end of our great educational and genius rope, and he's going to bring us down to the basics where all we have left is all we need. Amen. Leadership. This is another talent we've buried. We call management and administration leadership. They are not the same. A good leader is a lot better off if he can manage or she can manage too. 
But leadership is knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's Churchill telling Neville Chamberlain, our promise to the Czechs and our promise to the Poles and our promise to the League of Nations and the signing of Locarno and the Austrians, our promises are moral and binding and we ought to have kept them. But since you have chosen dishonor, just know this, you will have dishonor and you will have war too. Leadership is pricey and it's costly. And I'm here to tell you, no leader leads in a vacuum. It's another tie back to unity. I had somebody talking to me between the services about the first sermon. All they did was rev me up and give me courage to come out and do it a second time. Oh, they had a little critique and it was a good one. I don't want to hear just good news. If I'm going to be a better leader, I've got to hear it on both sides. But you know what? It's awfully nice and it comes in much better. If I'm bonded with you, there's another tag back to unity. How about love? Oh, we say we love each other. All the while, the devil's kicking dirt in on the grave of the church. They love each other. Stay at home. They love this better. They love that better. Kick another shoe full of dirt in on the grave of the church. It's awfully hard to love people you don't know. We're back to unity again. Say, Pastor, could you be a better broken record? No. You know, at the end of the day, it wouldn't matter if I was your pastor or somebody else was. If you were really unified and you prayed with and for each other and you were bonded with each other so that you could actually share your stuff with each other when you even knew someone had a need, this church would be like a mighty army even if it didn't have the right kind of leadership. So I'm listening to this interview by Eric Lars, the Splendid and the Vile. And he tells this story. It was a fall day, September, I believe, 1940. He says it was 90-some degrees out and everybody was in Piccadilly Square. It was, it was, not everybody, of course, but it was lots of people there. It was tea time. And all of a sudden, you could hear the sound the hum of the engines on the Luftwaffe planes. And as those planes came flying over at tea time, probably calculated to strike the greatest amount of fear into a nation that didn't really feel ready for war, people started scattering like rats. There was a group called the Mass Observation Movement. They were channeled and challenged to do journaling, to keep diaries. So these hundreds and probably thousands of people started keeping a diary. What was it like for 57 nights? It seemed like the bombing never ended. And the story last Monday morning as this biographer is, is telling, he said, there was a woman named Olivia Cockett. Olivia lived there in Great Britain, and she was like everybody else, kind of afraid. And what the Luftwaffe would do is it would fly over Great Britain and it would drop these incendiary bombs. I'm assuming since tea time probably came in the daylight, they're dropping the incendiary bombs. They catch things on fire and then all through the night, the rest of the German bombers that come in with the high explosives can see their target. Well, Olivia Cockett, part of this mass observation movement, decides that she's going to keep a diary. And the story I'm about to tell you comes from her diary. So one day she's in her home. And you can hear the sound of the airplanes. People lived in, in some of these bomb shelters nonstop, but not Olivia. She was in her house. And when this German airplane came over and that bomb, that rocket, 
fell out of the belly of that big silver plane and it came whistling down towards her property. It missed her house by just a little bit. But the bomb went off and the fire was on. Now Olivia could have stayed hunched down in her home shivering and shaking. But something changed in Olivia, which is what the point of this sermon is all about. Cockets, rocket in your pocket. She was down there in the basement of her home, I suspect, waiting and wondering. But when the bomb landed next door, something flipped inside of her. And she said, that fire's not going to burn next to my house. And she comes out of her home, and I don't know what she had for experience in fighting fires and how much water or whatever she had to put it out, but Olivia Cockett put the fire out all by herself. From that moment forward, the author says she was emboldened. She didn't approach the war the same way anymore. So later on, she's walking down the road with her boyfriend and the air raid signals go off. And Cockett, as I've already mentioned to you, has had a change of disposition towards this war. She's no longer living on the fear side. She's instead on the side of driving back the enemy from the gate. And her boyfriend looks at her and says, take cover. And she looks at him and says, I've got a brand new coat on. I'm not getting it dirty. And both the author and the interviewer did the same thing. They laughed. You know what Proverbs chapter 26 verse 13 says? It says, the sluggard, sounds like the one-talent man, the lazy man, the self-centered man. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. But that's not enough. The verse goes on to say, there's a lion in the square. And I'd go on to say, for that person, there's a lion everywhere. But you know what Peter tells us? Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And the next verse says, resist him. Friends, I want to assure you today that whether it's your phone upon which you keep your schedule or the phone upon which you pay your bills, whether this centering device, you could put Cockett's rocket in your pocket. You could take courage by getting into the war differently. It's not a game. It's not about kicking a soccer ball down around by your goal. It's about the fact that we have been trusted with one greater stewardship, which I have not said much about, and that is Ellen White says the seventh day of church. Let me just read it to you. In the balances of the sanctuary, the Seventh-day Adventist church is to be weighed. She will be judged by the privileges and the advantages that she has had. If her spiritual experience does not correspond to the advantages that Christ at infinite cost has bestowed on her, if her blessings conferred have not qualified her to do the work entrusted to her, on her will be pronounced the sentence, found wanting. Have you ever read those lines where she says, never have mortals been entrusted with more solemn and sacred truths than this church? So is it okay? Oh, there's an institution bleeding over there. There's an institution bleeding here. I guess we're going to bleed to death. The instrumentality for changing the way you face today and the future is a choice. And it will never be easy for you to change your commitment system without changing your priority system. So why, if we could be winners instead of losers, why wouldn't we take advantage? I told the story in the first service of someone who sold a truck just this week. They thought they sold it, then the person never came back to get it. Kind of disappointing. But somebody else came a few days later, and they paid him 300 more dollars. The person telling me the story shouldn't have been surprised to hear me say, you need to give a thank offering. You just got 300 more dollars you didn't plan on getting. 
Later on, they had a problem on another vehicle, and, and they fixed the problem without having to take it to the mechanic or spend hours working on it. You know what I said to them? I said the same thing. I said, you ought to give a thank offering. They said to me last night, I'm going to give a thank offering. I said, good, that's good. You should do that. Friends, how deeply invested are you in the conquest of the gospel? How deeply invested are you that the lost should hear and live? How invested are you that the church should be strong instead of weak? How invested are you in the success of the cause of Christ and the glory of the name of Jesus? In our closing hymn, we're going to sing these words, against the foe and veils below, let all our strength be hurled. I'm telling you, friends, he's hurling his strength at us. So why are we content to stay on autopilot and not change our priority system and our commitment system. If I had not lived like this, I was thinking about this when I was a seminarian. I used to drive. I had been married for three years. I was about to have a baby and I drove this car up and down M139, which was 31 back then. It was a junk heap rolling down the road. I've told you about these cars I drove. I could have taken my church offerings and got a better one, but I had made a commitment. I raised four children. My wife stayed home for almost two decades raising them. I never had to go back on my commitments. What I'm telling you is, is that you need Cockett's Rocket in your pocket. And by the way, this is Cockett's Rocket for me right here. If I'm going to dig my way out, I'm going to start by saying, you know what? I'm not too young. I'm not too old. I'm not too worried. And I'm not too afraid. I'm going to use what I've got to advance God's cause. I'll start with this. I'll go to the schedule. But I'm here to tell you, friends, when the war breaks wide open and wide out, the devil's just going to swipe a whole host of God's people off the map. What I'm telling you is this. You follow the divine directive of the scriptures and you will get stronger. And instead of saying, there's a lion in the street, there's a lion in the square, there's a lion over there, you'll start saying, where's the lion at? I'm going out in the armor of faith and the sword of the spirit and we're going to take him on. We need leaders, not managers. We need committed Christians, not patrons and customers. We need to come back to the simplest things. If Olivia Cockett, in the name of the mass observation movement, writing a social anthology, can record, my house is not burning at the hands of the Luftwaffe, and I'm not making it an easy target for tonight's high-powered bombers. There's more courage in the heart of a man or a woman imbued with the Spirit of Christ than the world will ever be able to muster without him. And this morning, friends, I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ has bought us with a price. He has redeemed us at great expense, and we have been entrusted with the greatest stewardship there ever is. But when we bury our unity, when we bury our leadership, when we bury our love, when we bury our mission, we shouldn't be surprised that we're burying the future of the church. It's time to get the shovel out. It's time to say, I am available. I will be at a prayer meeting. I will be at a small group. I will be at, I'm here to tell you tonight, Roy Gain is going to take us on the last of his segment on the book of Leviticus. How many of you really understand the book of Leviticus? Why shouldn't you be here? Oh, pastor, ease up, would you? Can't. If you work or you have another appointment, don't come. Otherwise, prayer is wont to be made right here tonight at 5.30. And you will learn things that will encourage you. We had a teenager who was sitting out in the foyer a couple Saturday nights ago. One of our pastors said, hey, why don't you come in and listen? They sat in the back as far back as they could sit, I guess. And when it was all said and done, the same person walked by them and they said, that was good. Does it have to be that good before you come, friends? Do we have to tie ourselves up in knots and do a backflip on the stage? Or is unity something we should strive, work, and pray for? Do we really think that we're just going to fall out of bed and win the war? Or will there be some effort? And is Christ not worth it? So let there be no confusion. If you're not returning an honest tithe today, I'm calling you to do it. If you're not paying systematic offerings to the mission of Christ locally, Michigan Advance Partners Conference, and globally, you are missing out and the work is suffering 
You are both obligated with your health and opportunity, not because I said so, because the Spirit of God has enabled you to do so. And I would be derelict of duty and inconsistent with what I've preached about if I didn't challenge you all to do it. So, you get to decide. Will this be the week of the shovel? Or will this be a week the devil kicks another pile of dirt on your spiritual grave? I don't know. But I do know this. It's opportunity and obligation. It's a call to action. And there is judgment. I'm not serving Jesus because I'm afraid of the judgment. I'm not saying it's never been so. And when it appears to be so, I stop. At least I try to stop. Say, Lord, just put the right thing inside of me. I want love for you. I want love for your people. And this morning, I'm calling you to serve Jesus with heart, mind, and soul with schedule and pocketbook. I'm looking at our church budget, and I see us trending the same way we trended last year. Oh, yes, we made it to budget. Praise the Lord. But I don't want to climb Mount Everest again at the end of the year. So for all of you that God's calling to move, move. Do something. Let's move together. And like a mighty army, may we instill some fear into the ranks of the evil one. And instead of the ball being down at our goalie all the time, let's kick it down to the other field and go down and put the press on him. Let's turn back the battle at the gate and say, this church will not be stuck barely existing. We're going to put a little scare into the other side through the power of prayer, the presence of the Spirit, and the leadership of Jesus himself. In my home, in my heart, in my fellowship. God help us. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.